When I was in college, one of the most common objections that I ran into with roommates and with friends and with classmates and even with professors was that ultimately when you get right down to the bottom of it, all Christianity is, all religion is, in fact, but I was a Christian so they'd shoot at Christianity in particular, all, all it is, they would say, is a crutch. You've probably heard coworkers, neighbors, friends, somebody say that to you. Christianity is just a crutch. It's, it's for weak people who can't stare the dark and sad world in the faith, face and, and need something more. You can't look out into the vastness and the blackness of space and, and deal with the fact that human beings are tiny and insignificant. You can't look at your own life and see that it's here one minute and gone the next. You've got to have something else. In order to make your life meaningful, in order to make it count for something, you had to make up all this stuff about life after death and about God and about meaning and about significance, and you lean on it like a crutch. You're not willing to look the world in the face. You're not willing to look your own self in the face. You're making yourself out to be something that you're not. You know, when I was a 21-year-old college student trying to learn how to talk to my roommates and defend the faith and all the rest, that, that struck me as a powerful objection to Christianity. Powerful. Because, yeah, it, it takes a certain amount of strength to look the universe in the face, to look this life in the face, to, to look yourself in the face and say, yeah, it's all just insignificant. Or at least that's what I thought. But the more I've aged and the more I've grown as a Christian, the more I've lived life, the more I've seen that, no, not at all. Christianity isn't a crutch. Christianity is not what averts its eyes. More than, more than any other religion, more than any other system of thought, more than any other system of faith, and everybody has faith, even if you say you don't, more than any other even non-system of faith and thought, Christianity is the only thing in the world, really, that looks clear-eyed into the most vexing and troublesome questions of human experience. I think you've seen that probably if you've been with us through this study of the book of Ecclesiastes. The, the teacher, as he's called, the man who wrote this book, is, is not afraid to look life in the face. He's not afraid to, to look us in the face and, and see us as human beings for who we really are. Written about 3,000 years ago, maybe by Solomon, maybe by another king of Israel somewhere down the line, Ecclesiastes is a book in the Old Testament that forms part of what we know as Old Testament wisdom literature. Um, we've talked about it a few times through this series. Wisdom literature can actually have several different goals. The Psalms in particular are, are meant very much to point us to Jesus Christ. The other wisdom literature is meant to show us something of the relationship of human beings to their God. But one of the main purposes of wisdom literature is that it seeks on, on every page, whether you're talking about the Psalms or the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon, any of them, they're seeking to try to teach us the art of living well in God's creation. Well, that's the aim of Ecclesiastes, and it's what the, the teacher, the preacher, that's who the book is named for. That word Ecclesiastes is, is actually Ecclesiastes, and it's just a title. It means the teacher or the preacher. That's what he's trying to get across to us, the art of living well in God's world. Now, if you've ever read Ecclesiastes straight through, we're, we're on week four of this series in Ecclesiastes, so I hope at some point, uh, if, you're, if you've been with us through this whole series, I hope at some point you found some time to just sit down and read all 12 chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes in one sitting. I think it would take you about an hour, maybe an hour and a half if you're a little bit slower reader, if you want to ponder over some of the themes of it. But it doesn't take that long, and I'd encourage you very much to do that. If you've done that, then you probably know that Ecclesiastes has a reputation of not being very happy at all. So when I summarize the, 
The main point of Ecclesiastes as the art of living well in God's world, that may strike you as a little bit surprising. I mean, I mean the book has a, a reputation, actually, for being downright depressing. And it starts from the very first few verses of the book. The, the teacher starts out the whole thing by saying, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. And then he just seems to go on for 12 chapters, sighing his way through the entire book, pointing out how nothing in this life really makes sense. It's all meaningless, and therefore we ought to just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're all going to die anyway. A lot of people have read the book like that, and they think that it's just one depressing thing after another. But I hope and I think that if you've been with us for the last few weeks, maybe you're starting to realize that the book of Ecclesiastes isn't nearly so sad as all that. I mean, for one thing, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the refrain that runs through the book, and it, it happens a dozen or more times in the book, the refrain is not meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. That's not what that word means. And if your Bible has translated that, that word in that way throughout the book, you need to scratch it out and put something else. That's not what it means. He's not saying meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Rather, what he means by saying that, what he's saying is something more like a breath, a breath, everything is the merest of breaths. By which he means, not that life is meaningless, but that it is short and thin. It's like a, the, the smoke of a candle that you've just blown out. It's here one moment, it's gone the next, and it's impossible to, to grab that smoke or to grab life and sort of lock it away permanently for safekeeping as if it's something you, you have profited from. But he also says throughout the book that within this short-lived vapor that is our lives, there is still a way to live that will bring joy and meaning, and that's what he wants to teach us. In fact, one of the most important lessons that, that he wants us to learn is that it is precisely not by denying the shortness and thinness of life, but it's precisely by recognizing and accepting the shortness and thinness of life that we learn how to really live life. We learn how to enjoy it for the gift from God that it is and stop this whole futile business that we so often engage in of trying to make our lives into a lasting monument to our own glory. Well, that was the lesson of week one, chapters one and two. If you're going to enjoy life, you have to understand its shortness. You have to understand that you're not going to be able to torture it for some lasting monument to your, to your glory. It's here as a gift from God, and therefore you ought to enjoy it while you've got it. That was chapters one and two. Then in weeks two and three of this series, chapters three through seven, we made our way through those, those four or five chapters right there, we, we thought through a series of other lessons that the preacher taught us in this book, ways to live well in God's creation for these short years that we are going to live. So we said that he taught us how to remember God's providence. He taught us to remember God's judgment. He taught us to live in order to love others, to live in humility before God. Last week, to live in the joy of God, not of things. To live in the shadow of the grave, not in the glare of the party. To live in reliance on God and not in reliance even on wisdom itself. Those are the lessons he's taught us so far. Well, today we're looking at chapter 8 and on into most of chapter 9, where the teacher, the, the Ecclesiastes, is continuing this whole line of thought. He's, he has, from the very beginning of the book, been giving us lessons on how to live well in God's world. And in these chapters, chapter 8 and on into 9, he turns specifically to ask the question, okay, how do we live well in a world that is full of so much evil and, above all, death? How do we live well in a world that is full of so much evil and above all death? What's the best way to live in a world like that? Well, that's what he answers beginning in chapter 8. So turn with uh, me, if you will, in a Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. If you're using one of these red Bibles uh, that you can find somewhere around you, uh, you can turn to page 557, and that's where you'll find 
Ecclesiastes chapter 8. So the teacher writes here, Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. So I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence, but do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurts. And then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this also is vanity. And I commend joy. For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, Man doesn't know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread in joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. 
Now, sometimes I think you read the book of Ecclesiastes, and you, you've probably experienced this as we've kind of made our way through the book, and you just feel lost, right? You just feel like if you're driving a car through the book of Ecclesiastes, it almost feels like you're on one of those roads on the side of a mountain with twists and turns, and there are just places where, you know, there's a hairpin turn in what the teacher is saying, and your car just crashes and goes right off the edge of the cliff. You're like, I don't know what to do with that, right? It's just really hard sometimes to see what's going to happen. Here, there are a couple of times in this chapter and a half, chapter and two-thirds or so, where as you read it, you kind of feel like you're going up on two wheels on the cliff. But I think with a little staring at it, a little kind of asking what's going on and trying to piece it together, I think you can see what's happening pretty quickly. Basically, I think you've got here in this section that I've read two two big portions of the text, two big sections of, of text. So throughout the whole of chapter 8, what the teacher is doing is talking about how to confront and live in the face of evil. So he starts at the beginning of chapter 8 with the scenario of a, uh, of a king who's making bad decisions. He doesn't quite say he's an evil king, but he does seem to think that the king is, is, is bad, at least stupid, in making bad decisions. And, and then after he considers that for a bit, how do you deal with a king like that? He, he moves on to consider how we should deal with the fact that justice just often doesn't seem to get worked out very well or very swiftly in this world. And he looks at that from several different angles. We're going to talk about that. The second big section is, is through most of chapter 9. I think down through chapter 12 is where the, or uh, sorry, verse 12. I think that's where the break really ought to be. Here, some of your Bibles will put the break right above verse 11. I think it actually ought to be underneath verse 12, but we can, we can argue about that if you want to. I don't really want to. I'm just telling you what I think. In that section anyway, 9 through 10, or, or 9 chapter, verse 1 through 10, maybe verse 1 through through 12, what the teacher is doing is that he naturally turns yet again to the subject of death. He says, in a world where righteous and wicked both wind up in the grave, how are we supposed to confront and deal with that fact and live in light of it? Well, the answer he gives to, to all of that, how do we live in a world where there is such evil and where justice seems so scarce? And how do we live in a world where death seems so universal? How do we do that? The answer he gives, I think, is this, and I think it's the main idea of this chapter in two-thirds. Evil and death in the world don't need to leave us in despair. Evil and death, the evil and death that we see in the world don't need to leave us in despair. Why? Because there is a God. And therefore, we can confront evil and death with patience and faith and joy, and even hope. It doesn't need to leave us in despair. I'll say it again, because some of you are writing it down. Why not? Why doesn't doesn't looking at the evil and death in the world, why doesn't it leave us in despair? Because there's a God. And therefore, we can confront evil and death with patience and faith, with joy, and even hope. So since there are two big sections of the text, there are two points to the sermon. Number one, how to confront evil. And number two, how to confront death. Number one, how to confront evil, and number two, how to confront death. So point number one, that's what he talks about throughout the whole of chapter eight, how to confront evil. It was, uh, it was Thomas Hobbes who famously said that life at its most basic level was just solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Well, m- mostly through the book of Ecclesiastes so far, the teacher has been grappling with the short part, right? That's what he's been talking about. Life is so short. It's like a vapor. It's here one minute, and it's, and it's gone the, the next. So how do you live well, he's been asking, knowing that life is just a mist, knowing that it's just a vapor, and ultimately nothing you do on this earth is going to last? How do, you, how do you live well? That's what he's been asking for the first seven chapters. Here, though, he turns to, to more of Hobbes' nasty and brutish part. 
How do you live well and rightly in a world that is full of so much evil and injustice? What do you do with all that? Well, he begins in verse 1 with this proverb, strikes us as strange at the beginning, about the usefulness of wisdom. That's kind of what he's talking about, isn't it? At first glance, it seems to be just just kind of a transition from what he's been talking about in chapter 7, that wisdom has its uses, but it can't be used to solve everything, into what he's talking about here in chapter 8, how to deal with evil in in the world, particularly with a a stupid or bad king. I think it has a little more meaning than that, and after I explain a little bit what he's doing in chapter 8, I think you'll see how that proverb fits a little more tightly. It's not the most important thing, uh, but I think you'll see it in in a little bit later. Anyway, the The stupid king, the bad king, and how you deal with it. That's the issue that the teacher turns to, starting in verse 2. The question is, what do you do do if you're in the service of a king, and you could translate that as boss or board or whatever whatever you want to translate it to. What do you do when you're in the service of a king who's making bad decisions? Decisions that you disagree with. And and the thing is, as you read through verses, say, 1 to 6, the answer he gives, I think, is just startlingly unexpected. Because I think most of us, especially since we've, we, we've grown up in, in, you know, going to, most of us have grown up going to conferences in our Christian life where everything is a call to do more, to do greater things. I think what we'd expect him to say to the question, what do you do with a bad king, is something like this. Well, you confront him. You get right up in his face. You take your complaints right to his face. And you speak truth to power. And God will give you the words to say when you stand before a corrupt king. And you know what? If you die, you die. If If the king decides to lop your head off, have your head lopped off. But God will be with you in the fire. He will never forsake you, and he will snatch you out of the lion's jaws and bring glory to himself when he does. So go confront the king and speak truth to power. Okay, well, sometimes, right? And you got a lot of stories in the Bible where people do exactly that and where God does exactly that. But strikingly, that is not anything like the answer that the preacher actually gives here. And look at what he says in verses 2 to 6. He says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Don't take your stand in an evil cause either, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, including you, he means, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command of the king will know no evil thing. Nothing bad will happen to him. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. It may not be now, he means. For there is a time and a way for everything, although there's going to be a lot of trouble in it. Man's trouble lies heavy on him. You see what he's he's saying there? You see what he, he means there? Essentially, he's saying that you should deal with this kind of king, this kind of boss, this kind of board, whatever it is, whatever you need to translate it into. You need to deal with this kind of king with caution and shrewdness. I mean, look at it. Verse 2, he says, obey him because of the oath God has made to him. Because it's God who's put the king in this, in this position. God's made an oath to him, especially if we're talking about the Davidic king here. God's made an oath to him. So obey him. Verse 3, I think he's, I think he's giving some balanced advice there in verse 3. He's saying, don't rush out in a huff, right? You know, don't, don't leave his presence too hastily. Don't, don't rush out and slam the door on the king. That won't go well for you. But he's also saying, look, even if you're not rushing out of the room, you may not want to keep yourself in a bad situation for too long. That That little phrase there in verse 3, don't, don't, what does it say? Don't stand in an evil cause. Don't take your stand in an evil cause. The phrase evil cause there isn't just giving the sort of boring advice, don't be evil. That's not what that means. What it's saying is don't stick around in a bad situation. That's what it's meaning. 
It's saying don't get yourself entangled in a bad situation with no escape. And why should you not do that? Because the king is dangerous. He can kill you. He can do whatever he wants. He's dangerous. Verse 4 is making that same point. The king is dangerous. Verse 5. Here's the other side. If you obey him, though, if you, if you obey the command, no evil thing is going to happen to you, like having your head chopped off or being thrown to the lions. It won't happen. Verse 6, look, there's a time and a place for everything. Even, even confronting a bad king, there's a time and a place for that. But it may not be now. And for you to recognize that there's a time and a place for it, it may not be now, could weigh heavily on you. It could cause you a lot of trouble, but maybe you need to do it anyway. You see what he's saying? I mean, it's just, it's so totally unexpected because what he's saying is you should deal with a king like this with caution and shrewdness. Caution and shrewdness. That's the first way the teacher says we're supposed to live in an evil world. Which, going back to verse 1, if if you're curious about that, that's probably why he begins this whole thing with this proverb in verse 1 that says that wisdom will make your face shine. It's not so much that wisdom is so good that it will make you glow. That's not what it means. What he's saying, given what comes after, is, look, a wise person in the presence of a king will keep a smile on his face. You don't frown at the king because he might chop your head off. That's probably what he's doing anyway in verse 1. Anyway, here's the question. Caution and shrewdness. That's how you deal with evil in the world. Does that surprise you? my, My guess is it probably does. If you're a Christian, probably it surprises you because most of the time, the story we tell ourselves over and over again about how we're supposed to live in an evil way is, or in an evil world is that we always ought to confront the evil in the world with all kinds of bravery and courage, right? Riding forth from Camelot and not at all afraid to be killed in nasty ways. But you see what the teacher's saying here, hold up there, brave Sir Robin, Maybe, just maybe, the best course for you in living in a world that is so dangerous and so evil, maybe the best course is not at every moment to run headlong into a situation that in all likelihood is going to end in your death. Maybe, he says, you should live your life with a little more shrewdness, with a little more caution, with a little more wisdom. Now, I understand as somebody who's, who's steeped in you know, Christian rhetoric and Christian conferences and all the rest, that advice coming from Ecclesiastes may strike you like it does me at first as somehow a little bit unworthy. But I think that if you think about it, you'll realize that it's born of a certain realism about the world. And if you think about it a little more deeply, this advice that the teacher gives to approach life and the evil in the world with caution and shrewdness is what the New Testament teaches too. I mean, think about it. Jesus did not say that we should be as brave as brave Sir Robin. He said we should be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, he he meant on the one hand that that you as a Christian can't and you've got to determine that you won't participate in sin. But it also means that you don't have to rush headlong into death poking the dragon either and daring it to kill you. I mean, you think about Acts. Think about Paul's life. This is... This is how Paul lived over and over again. As he faced evil, as he faced threat, as he, as he faced oncoming death. I mean, for example, he didn't, he didn't just take the 40 lashes from the, from the Romans, gritting his teeth and saying, this is for Jesus. No, he said, hold up. Is it lawful for you to do this to a citizen of Rome? Shrewd, wise, cautious. When the city of Ephesus rioted, 
because of his teaching. He didn't just, he didn't just wade out into the middle of the, the riot with his arms out screaming, may the lamb receive the reward of his suffering and let them beat him to death. They got into a basket and they lowered him over the wall and he got out of Dodge. Cautious, shrewd. There's even one point where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, had him arrested and they were, they were about to kill him, probably. And he, 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 he said, actually, so, hey, uh, you Pharisees and you Sadducees, what do you guys think about the resurrection? Right, because that was the main point of contention between Pharisees and Sadducees. They hated each other because they disagreed on whether there was going to be a resurrection. Paul just throws that little hand grenade right into the middle, and they start fighting with each other. And you know why Paul did that? The reason he did it was not to create an opportunity to share the gospel. He wanted the Roman soldier who had a hold of him to see the chaos that was going on in the Sanhedrin and say, enough of this, I'm getting you out of here. You can read about it in Acts. And was that cowardice? All those things that I just described from Paul, is that, is that cowardice? No, it's not cowardice. Paul dealt with the world. He dealt with its evil. He dealt with its threats with caution and shrewdness, and so should you. Now, maybe, maybe, maybe that is particularly relevant to some of you who work in Louisville office buildings and businesses and schools, because I know, especially if you, if you work in public schools or if you work in some of the larger companies here in town, that you are more and more in today's day and age being faced with hard choices. You are being asked to celebrate things that you simply cannot as a Christian celebrate. You're being asked to affirm things that you simply as a Christian cannot affirm. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, there's no way that I can work all that out in all of its details right here from the pulpit. I can't give you a sort of play-by-play flowchart that'll tell you exactly what to do in every situation. That's why you've got a church. But I do think that wisdom helps plot a course. You know what wisdom would say? It would say, first of all, there, there are kind of two parts to Jesus' summation of all of this, right? First of all, be innocent as a dove. In your place of business, in your school, whatever it is, be innocent as a dove. The fact is, you cannot, as a Christian, participate in sin. You just can't. You cannot celebrate what is sinful. You cannot affirm what is a lie. And the fact is, when push comes to shove, and you are eventually dragged into the CEO's office or dragged into your principal's office or your boss's office, and you are told you will either affirm this falsehood or you will lose your job, it's your responsibility to stand there and affirm the truth as a Christian. But friend, that does not mean that you have to rush into the CEO's office or the principal's office and say, let me tell you what I think about all this. I'm a Christian and here's my opinion of you. Faithfulness doesn't demand that and wisdom would often counsel against it. Look, I know that's not going to answer every question, but it is worth thinking about. What does it mean for you in your life, in your place of business, to be shrewd and yet innocent, wise and yet affirming of the truth? What does that mean? Think about it now, so that when the fire comes, when the challenge hits, you'll already have some idea. So confront evil, the teacher says, with with caution and shrewdness. That's one thing he says. He also says, though, in this chapter 8, that we should confront evil with patience and faith. Patience and faith. That's what he says, really, in verses 7 through 14. You can can look at that with me. We're not going to read it again. In verses 7 and 8, he, he just reaffirms what he's been saying through the whole book. You human beings, he says, we, we human beings have no idea what's going to happen to us. We, we are not in charge. And, and by the way, he says in verse 8, I believe it is, you can't check out of the whole thing either, right? These rhythms of life, the, these situations that we find ourselves in, joy and, and, and peace and laughter and mourning and the opposite of all of those, you can't just check out of it, right? 
War doesn't let you go. You can't, can't be discharged from a war once it's started. The wickedness of the world, he says, isn't going to grant you leave to run away. And look down at 14, too. So often, he says there, the, the world just doesn't make sense. Not only do we not have control of it, but it just utterly doesn't make any sense. There are wicked people who get what the righteous ought to get, and there are righteous people who get what the wicked ought to get, and that's happening all over the world. Where is the justice, he says? But then his point comes in verses 10 to 13. Point comes in 10 to 13. Ultimately, he says, the wicked are buried. Bad kings are going to die, and then they're dropped in the ground in the very cities where they used to be praised and worshipped and honored, and they're forgotten. What's more... The injustice of the world, the fact that sinners can sin a hundred times and continue to get away with it over and over again. He says, he says that the answer to that is that ultimately God will set it right. We talked about it last week. Ultimately, there's a day coming when God will set it right. It will go well, he says, for those who fear God and not well for those who do not. It's the same point that we talked about last week and, and I think even the week before that. But the teacher's ultimate answer to the problem of evil is this. In the end... There will be no problem of evil. That's his answer. In the end, there will be no problem of evil. God will set everything right. Now, I understand that it's hard to see and understand exactly how he's going to do that now. I understand that, that we can't see how every little thing is going to be made right, but the Bible promises that it will. God will set it all right. And you know what's more? It's not even that the puzzle will be put into place and you'll then stand back and say, yeah, I see that you judged everything, right? Sin got judged and people, people got, got judged and for their sin and all the rest of it. I see that. But God, I still don't understand why the puzzle had to be there in the first place. No, because even in the, in the end, even that is going to be set right. Even the existence of evil and why God did it will fall into its place and make sense. Now, I don't understand that. I don't get it. I don't have an answer for it. That is too big for my mind, but I know from the Bible that it's true. And in the meantime, our place as Christians, as those who are faithful, is to be patient and know for certain and live in light of the fact that that day is in fact coming. I think sometimes we look around the world and we have an impulse just to fix whatever problem we see. Right? There's a problem. I have to solve that. I have to do something. But that's the thing about life in this fallen world. Some things can't just be fixed. They have to be endured. And the treasure we gather in that darkness is patience and faith in the God who has promised he's going to set it right, even if we can't. We confront evil with patience and faith in the God who will set it right. Also, we confront evil with humility and joy in God. Humility and joy in God. That's his point in 15 through 17. When he's confronted with the fact that God doesn't execute justice immediately in this world, that he even seems to let injustice prevail, what's the teacher's response? What is our response supposed to be? Look at, look at 15, chapter 8, verse 15. So he says, in light of all this, I commend joy. For man has no good thing under the sun. But to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. It's a striking point, right? At the end of all this philosophical meandering through these ideas, the point that he comes to is eat and drink and be joyful, for this is what will go with you in your toil through the days of your life that God has given you under the sun. I mean, it almost makes you laugh. It's almost funny that that is the conclusion he comes to because what he's saying is, look, I've tried to figure this all out. 
All this injustice, why God does this, why God allows that, why God has ordered the world as he, as he has. I've tried hard to figure it all out, and I can't. It's beyond me. I don't know why God does the things that he does. I don't know why he refrains from doing the things he refrains from doing. I don't know why he allows what he allows. I don't know why there's so much injustice in the world. I don't know what God's purposes are. I've thought about it, and I've come to the conclusion that he just hasn't given it to me to know the answers to those things. And so I'm not going to try to pry into what God has not given it to me to know. So what am I going to do? I'm going to ride it out and enjoy life. I'm going to have another glass of wine. I mean, you can see what got him there in 16 and 17. Look at that. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. I'm worried about everything. Then I saw all the work of God. I saw what God is doing in the world. And I saw that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun by God, he means. However much man may toil in seeking, he's not going to find it out. And even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. There is profound wisdom I think in that. I think sometimes we mistake wisdom for knowing all the answers. But it's not. It's not. Some of the greatest wisdom in the world is knowing that you will not find answers to some questions. Because there are just certain questions that God has not given it to us to know the answers to. They fit in his mind, but not in ours. You know, you know Job in the Old Testament. You remember his story. He, he learned this lesson, right? You remember the story. God took everything away from him. Made, him, made him suffer in just unimaginable ways. Allowed Satan to just, just rip his life apart. And then the whole book, and it's long. It's a long, long book. The entire book is Job shaking his fist at heaven and demanding answers from God about the reasons for his suffering. Why did you allow this to happen? I need to hear from you. You, oh God, need to justify yourself for what has happened in my life. That's the whole book. His friends are trying to convince him not to do that, and they're offering their own answers and all this, and he's rejecting it all. He's just saying, God, you have to give me the answers to my questions. Why am I suffering? Why is there evil in my life, in the world? And when the answer comes finally from God, you remember what it is? You remember what the answer from God is? Well, well, God just busts into the scene and basically gives Job a tour of creation. He says, he says buck yourself up, gird up your loins, pull, pull your pants up. And stand in front of me like a man, he says. I'm done with you questioning me. I'm going to question you now, and you're going to answer. So here's my question. Explain to me, oh Job, because you are so wise and ancient. Explain to me where the rains come from. Explain to me where the storehouses of the snow and the hail are. Explain to me how the lightning gets ignited. Explain how the sun and the planets run their course. You are so old. You were there when the foundations of the universe were established. So tell me, why doesn't the universe just fly apart in its rotations. Explain to me why mountain goats and mountain lions and fish behave the way that they do. Explain why the ostrich can run so fast and yet she's so stupid she abandons her young to die. Explain all that to me, God says. You can't. Now, why does he do that? Why does God say all that to Job? I mean, is, he, is, this, just, is this just sort of a raw display of power? He's just rolling up his sleeve and showing his muscle? To Job and saying, you need to shut up or I will pound you. I don't think that's what he's doing. That's not what he's, that's not what he's doing. He's making a profound point to Job. He's saying to him, look, Job, there are things that you don't understand. And if you can't explain my governance of the physical universe, 
How dare you call me into question for my governance of the moral universe? It's a profound lesson, and, Job, and that's the point in the book where Job covers his mouth because he gets it. He gets the analogy. I don't understand even the physical universe, even the stuff that I can see and understand. I, don't under, I can't explain it. How in the world am I going to call God into question for the way he governs the world morally? So he covers his mouth. But God's not done. Because in the last few chapters, what he does is that he goes on to describe some of the most terrifying examples of creatures from the land and the sea. And he describes to Job first behemoth and then leviathan, right? And the, what he, we don't exactly know what behemoth and leviathan were, but God seems to take a, a sort of special delight in them. What, what we know is that, and the point that God makes over and over is, look, behemoth and leviathan are the most fearsome examples of creature in all the world. They are utterly beyond the control. They are utterly beyond the understanding of man. They are terrifying. They are strong. They are wild. And yet God rules them and even sees a mysterious beauty in their savage wildness. So this is God's answer to Job. You, you want me to justify myself to you? Here's his answer to Job. Do you want to understand and master suffering and pain and evil? Well, Job, you might as well try to put a hook in Leviathan's nose. Do you see his point? Evil is Leviathan. Suffering in this world is Leviathan. It is terrifying. It is unmastered. It is ungovernable by man. But never for a moment is it outside of God's universal sovereignty. Never for a moment is it not serving his purposes to bring glory to himself. So you see what the teacher's saying. He's saying the same thing. The teacher in Ecclesiastes is saying the same thing. Evil is Leviathan. You're not going to understand it. You're not going to master it. You're not going to wrestle it down. Don't wear yourself out banging your head on questions that God has declined to give you answers to. Just watch the storm swirl around you. Trust God. Pray to him and have another glass of wine. How do you confront evil? Caution and shrewdness, patience and faith, humility and joy. That's what he says. So point number two, how to confront death. How do you confront death? Well, in chapter 9, after he's been considering injustice in the world, how the, how the evil seem to prosper and the righteous seem to not prosper, in chapter 9, he turns back to consider death and how it looms over all of us, righteous and wicked, at the same time. And this has been a theme. Death has been a theme running through the whole book. Life is short. Death is coming. It's a little different here, though, because, because it's coming on the heels of this meditation on, on evil. So, so in verses 1 through 6, He's, he's, what he's really doing is marveling at the fact that death is so universally the same. And what he says over and over through verses 1 to 6, is, look, it happens to everybody. We all end up in the same place. And what he means by that is the grave. He doesn't mean heaven or hell. He means the, the grave, like the, your body goes in the grave. The rich and the poor will both wind up in the grave. The powerful and the not powerful wind up in the grave. The religious and the irreligious, all of them, even the righteous and the evil, all wind up in the same place the grave. You look at verse 4. Some of you may have wondered about this. That's not even as hopeful as it might sound at first. And that word there in verse 4 is not really hope. It's just certainty, right? And what he means by that is this kind of wry, sort of tongue-in-cheek point. Look, at least the living can know something for sure. I mean, yeah, true. What they know is that they are most certainly going to die. But at least that's something because the dead know nothing. They don't, they don't have any love. They don't have any hate. They don't have any envy. They don't experience any emotions at all. Death comes to us all, he says. It's better to be alive than dead. What's more, he says a little bit later, we don't even know when it's coming. We're not in control of it. 
Look at verses 11 and 12. He's saying, you can't master this thing. You can't run a little faster or be a little wiser and think that death is going to come for you later or that you're going to be able to make an appointment with it. That's not the way it works. Death, he says, comes on us like a fisherman's net. And before we know it, it takes us. So, so how do you confront that reality? Well, the teacher's answer comes in verses 7 to 10. Look at 7 to 10. Chapter 9, verses 7 to 10. He says, there go. Eat your bread in joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Be happy, in other words. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun because that's your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your, fine, your, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for you're not going to have the chance to do it. Not going to have the chance to engage this world any longer when you go to the grave. You see what he's doing there? He's not throwing up his hands in despair. He's saying, look, yes, life is short. Life passes swiftly. And time is going to wash away everything that you've built for yourselves like the waves wash away a sandcastle. So live life well. It's incredibly important, right? I mean, to recognize that. It's incredibly important for us to understand how short life is and how fleeting our accomplishments are because it punctures our godlike pretensions as human beings. It reminds us that we are not in control of the world. We're not in control of life. We're not in control of the events that take place in the world. We can't figure them out, wrestle them down, solve them like we always want to do. If I just do this, life will be happy. If I do that and then that, life will be good. No, you can't solve life like that. You can't build lasting monuments to yourself. And one day, believe it or not, the flip-flop clad foot of some tourist in Westminster Abbey is going to brush out the very last trace of King James's name on that brick. And nobody will remember. One day, no matter what kind of monuments you build in your honor, no matter what kind of legacy you build in your own honor, it will be said of you, nothing beside remains around the decay of that colossal wreck. But boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. But you know what the teacher says? You know what he realizes? All of that stark, bracing truth does not lead us to despair. It doesn't lead us to a kind of nihilism that says, well, then who cares? No, what it leads us to is to see life for what it is, a gift from God. Enjoy life, work hard. You see verse 10 there? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might because you won't have a chance after you go to the grave. Live life, enjoy it, work hard, eat, drink, love, and all the while let your faith be in God and not in some silly attempt on your part to bring the world to heal. You're not going to be able to do it. But, but there's more to this too, I think. There's more to say about this, the way we confront death, especially as Christians. First of all, first of all, as a Christian, death is not something for you to fear. Not as a Christian. Death is not something for you to fear. It may look dark and it may look scary. It may look terrifying to you. You may be looking at it more closely than you have ever looked at it before in your life. But friend, it is not something to be feared if you are a Christian. Why not? Well, for one thing, God is completely sovereign over it. You realize that the God who sits on the throne of the universe and who loves you is sovereign over death. You can see this in verse 1 of chapter 9 where he says everything is in the hands of God. He's going to say this again in, in other places too, but... The Bible's consistent teaching is that your birth, your days, your death are all in the hands of God. Not a little bit of it is an accident. Which means that when you die, it's not going to be because something just happens to you. It's going to be because God has decided that he would no longer keep you so far from himself. 
and he'll call you home. He's sovereign over it, every bit of it. Maybe you've noticed in in Genesis chapter 5, for instance. You ever notice Genesis chapter 5? By that point in the story, the Bible's trying to make the point that death has mastery over human beings. The, the sin of Adam and Eve and the curse of death has got its claws in humanity. And what it's doing, it's given a genealogy, right, of all the generations. But every single one of them ends with, and he died, and he died, and he, it's like a drumbeat running through that whole chapter telling you that death is the master. Like 14 times, the drumbeat of death rings out in chapter 5. But then there's Enoch. God took him. See the point? Death may have mastery, but God can stop it anytime he wants. He's the king, not death. Also, though, it's true that death shouldn't be a fear to you. It shouldn't be a fearsome, terrifying thing to you because God is sovereign over it, and he, he loves you. But, but there's also the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ the fact that Jesus came to save us from our sin, the fact that he calls us to put our faith in him so that we might be saved from our rebellion against God, the gospel of Jesus actually in this wonderful way turns death for a Christian actually into a thing of beauty. This is why Paul can say something like, to die is gain, because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. See, for, for us as Christians, death isn't some fearsome, fearsome enemy. Yes, it may be a struggle when the moment comes. The waters of the Jordan may be deep and dark and cold for you. But most of all, death for a Christian is a homecoming. I love what, what one author says about this. He says, he says this, To have a peaceful and blessed ending to life, we must live life with Christ. But when we do, such a life grows brighter even to its close in death. Its last days are the sunniest and the sweetest. The more earth's joys fail, the nearer and more satisfying do the comforts of heaven become. And for such a life that has been lived in Christ, death has no terrors. The signs of its approach, the sicknesses and the difficulties and the pains and the hardships, the signs of its approach are but the birds lighting on the sails of the ship, telling the weary sailor that he is nearing the haven. And then the end is but the touching of the weather-beaten keel of the ship on the shore of glory. See, there's, a, there's just a, a beautiful irony in this. This whole thing, there's a beautiful irony in it because the reality of death, Ecclesiastes teaches us, gives meaning to our lives. It drives us to stop having faith in ourselves and to start putting our faith in God, which means to put your faith in Jesus for salvation. But in turn, when you do that, it is our very faith in Christ that gives meaning to our death, that makes it something beautiful, that makes it nothing more really than a ship that takes us home to our Savior. Let's pray.